This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. To begin with, uh, this is a, a big day for the, the folks down at uh, Local 1005 and, of course, 8782 out in uh, Nanticoke. Uh, it's official now. Bedrock Industries today gets the keys, and uh, they are new owners of Stelco. Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, is here in studio to talk about this. Uh, happy Canada Day weekend, by the way. Thank you. Happy Canada Day to you as well and to your listeners. Good to have you with us here today. Uh, did you think... <laughs> Over the, it seems like about a hundred years that you and I have been talking about this, uh, that we were going to get to this point because the, there were some pretty dark days in these as this thing unfolded over the last number of years. Yeah, two and a half years. It was October of 2014 that this saga began of creditor protection. And what's interesting is the company that is going to wind up with the keys, as you suggested, Bedrock, didn't exist at that time. Bedrock was formed in February of 2016. So. Uh, when you're asking, did I think I, we were going to get here, I was very concerned that this time we might actually end up in bankruptcy, liquidation, that there just did not seem to be any white knights on the horizon. Uh, Bedrock was formed, uh, lucky, or I should try it this way. Earlier this week, I had a chance to meet David Cheney. He's the managing partner of Bedrock Industries. Uh, Bedrock was formed in February 2016. This is what he told me, to uh, look for opportunities in metals and mining, and that would include steel companies and other sorts of things. Uh, very early on, they detected the Stelco creditor protection. And uh, when I met him on Tuesday, he was very complimentary to the company's history in Hamilton. He said he understood. They understand that it's an iconic Hamilton company. They understand the luster has gone off the rose, so to speak. And so he said one of their missions, once they take the the is to try to restore the luster. They want to be an employer of choice. They want to participate in the community, and they also want to grow the company. When I say that, in particular, a very big focus on profitability, getting more sales and becoming more profitable. Uh, I have said to you and others that I thought maybe Bedrock was just a house flipper in the sense yeah. that they were going to buy the company and in a year or two flip it. I'm now thinking quite differently that they're going to be here longer. Now, whether Bedrock will own it for 20 years, I'm not sure. But I think they're in for 5 to 10 for sure, that they really seem to have a plan. Mr. Kestenbaum, who's one of the other partners in the organization, that's his track record of taking companies, growing them, getting to be of a certain size, and then his escape clause, if you will, is through a merger with somebody else. But that would be down the road quite a little bit. Maybe let's back up a bit since you've had an opportunity to talk with those folks. And maybe for those that are not familiar uh, with exactly what Bedrock is and what kind of an institution, what kind of an enterprise they are, uh, when we talk about Bedrock Industries, like you say, they're not a steel company. They're, they're well, you explain to us exactly who they are, what they are, and, and why they'd even be interested in, in something like Stelco. Yeah, so Bedrock Industries was formed in February 2016. It was incorporated initially in Miami, Florida, maybe for tax purposes as a Florida company, but its head office is now in New York City. Um, three uh, three key partners and all this uh, uh, c- came together uh, and accumulated a lot of money. So they didn't have any companies at the time. Now, these three gentlemen involved, uh, Mr. Kestenbaum, Mr. Cheney, um, and the other gentleman just left my name, left, left my head for a second. Uh, they have between them over 75 years of experience in doing deals in metals and mining, and they were just looking for another deal to do. So they assembled cash. Uh, now, this part got Fred Eisenberger's eyebrows up when uh, Mr. Cheney said that they have a half a billion dollars at the moment and access to two billion more that they are looking to make some strategic acquisitions, and they're starting first with Stelco. Um, 
and I think I think this is just what it is on the face value of it. This is a company that is looking to make a mark in the metals industry, and then when they get to be a certain size and can't be ignored, then maybe their exit strategy will be a merger. But that's ten, maybe fifteen years down the road. All right, they're saying all the right things. They uh, are. How are they going to make it happen? Well, that's a good question. So I, I asked them off the bat, uh, is there going to be a change at the top? Uh, certainly, they are uh, very experienced people, and I thought maybe one of them was going to become the new CEO. Instead, they were very complimentary of Mike McQuaid, the current CEO. They said, look, he's, he's had a very difficult time for two and a half years, and he has steered the ship quite well. So his reward for doing so is that he's staying on as CEO. But they also said they're going to be very hands-on. Mr. Cheney lives in New Jersey. Mr. Kestenbaum's office is in New York. That's an hour away by jet. Um, and they do plan to be here and help help um, shape the company going forward. I asked him about Mr. Trump, uh, as you probably know, that in his different days and his more lucid days, Mr. Trump <laughs> talks about investing a trillion dollars in infrastructure, but, 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 it's got to be American companies. Uh, are, are you going to wave an American flag? Or are you going to wave a Canadian flag? And he... I, I, again, give him great credit for the answer. He says, look, we're, we're used to working in volatile times. We understand the price of steel can go up and down like a heartbeat. We also understand the fortunes in the American government can go up or down. But he wasn't phased by it. Again, in their 25 years individually, each of experience together, that's where you get 75 from, they have negotiated deals, had to walk the halls of Washington, lobby, etc., to get what they want, and they're not the least bit afraid. And so when it's to their advantage to wave the Canadian flag, they'll do so. When it's their advantage to wave an American flag, they'll do so. Their focus is going to be on generating sales, staying profitable. And he also used another term, Bill, that's probably foreign to most of your listeners. He said, we're very keen on keeping a clean balance sheet. And what that means to me as a business school professor is they're not going to take on a lot of debt just for the sake of taking on a lot of debt, that they're going to think very long and hard before going into debt because they do not want to repeat the two previous creditor protections that we've seen with this company. All right. But if we could classify Stelco or U.S. Steel as it was when these guys uh, started kicking the tires as a, uh, a fixer-upper, mm-hmm. um, they're going to have to put some money into this, are they not? Yes. So oddly enough, I met Mr. Cheney on Tuesday at the Bay Area Economic Summit hosted by the two chambers of commerce. At the same time that I was chatting with him, Mr. Kestenbaum, the other partner, was attending a steel conference in New York City. And he was giving a speech and was asked about Stelco. And he said, yes, uh, he acknowledged right off the bat that for the last five years, he feels investments that should have been made in Stelco were not being made by U.S. Steel. And so that's his first priority. Now, these are the investments basically keep the company current, uh, you know, repair um, uh, uh you know, the, the uh, just regular routine maintenance, things that need to be done. Uh, so he says that's going to be our first focus. Then our next focus is going to be to invest in terms of energy capture, uh, reduce their energy footprint because of the cost of energy. And then next, uh, carbon dioxide. He wants to deal with some investments on carbon dioxide. He didn't come out and say it, but I'm assuming some of this is promoted by the carbon tax that Kathleen Wynne has put in and said, well, now we have an incentive to do something, so so let's do that. Uh, I tried to ask the question, or, or, or you know, maybe get him to take the bait, so to speak, <laughs> on a, a blast furnace for Hamilton, because certainly when that was closed, a lot of people were very upset. Are you thinking you might like to build or reopen a blast furnace? And Mr. Cheney uh, very deftly avoided the question. But what he said was, you know, when we start up, the way our vision is, is that Nanticoke is going to make steel and Hamilton's going to finish steel. Our investments are going to maintain that to begin with. 
Now, once we get the rains, maybe three, four, five years from now, maybe we'll talk about a shift in that. But for the foreseeable future, the next two or three years, nothing substantially changed in terms of having Nanticoke as the steelmaking hub and Hamilton as the finishing hub. What, what about actually what they're doing there? And you, you just talked about how he foresees the Hamilton operation and, and the, the, the Nanticoke operation. But but one of the criticisms about the, this operation for years now, Marvin, has been, you know what, these guys didn't change with the times. ArcelorMittal, or DeFasco as it was back in the, those days, uh, they moved with it. They've changed the way, and what they produce, as a matter of fact, not just how they produce it. Mm-hmm. And and they're thriving. They're doing great, thank you very much. Uh, Stelco's going to have to learn to do that. Do they, or is there a niche for them with what they're doing now? Well, again, I asked Mr. Cheney a question, something like that, and and the reaction I got was that they are interested in launching more profitable products, that they realize that being in the basic steel industry is not going to get them the kind of premium they want per ton of steel produced. Again, if their focus is on profitability, they almost have to start diversifying the product line. Now, he wasn't revealing which way they want to go, and I think some of this is going to be by seat of the pants, and it'll be a little trial and error over the first six months to, say, 18 months. But uh, I'm, I'm much more convinced than I was before having met Mr. Cheney. I looked him in the eye, and he was a, he's a very clever man. I, I don't think they're just going to run this in neutral. I think they plan to put the foot down to the gas pedal, meaning that they are going to make some substantial changes, not in terms of the way the business operates, but in terms of the markets it's targeting and the products it's offering. All right, who's going to run the operation? You mentioned that they're going to hang on to the same guy running the, the show right now. Uh, but these guys are not, as you mentioned, are not steel producers. They're, they're, they're these the, the three that own Bedrock, or the, the, the principals in Bedrock, right. anyway. Uh, you know, if if you don't know the the industry and you don't know the the, the business as well as as you probably should in a situation like that, you better hire somebody who can be innovative like that. Do they have that team right now? Or are they yeah. going to have to go looking? So. Again, Bill, you know, I I, um, I learned a little more about them. You're, you're absolutely right. They're not steel producers. They don't have a history of steel production, but they do have a history of, of, um, uh, of making deals in the industry, in the metals industry, and they also have... Uh, understanding of what's what's needed where where are the uh, the markets that are growing where are the markets that are shrinking so I, I think they'll be able to bring in technical people to the extent they need it but these people in particular are very strong on sales and this is something that's desperately needed uh, again to take you back in time when this whole credit protection began this was US Steel Canada but the reality was that the sales for U.S. Steel Canada were being made by U.S. Steels in the United States. Mm-hmm. And there was really not a significant sales force here. And then as U.S. Steel started to walk away, the problem was that U.S. Steel Canada had to get a sales force and get out there. And you were really starting from scratch. These people are coming in on that side of the house very strongly. So. Uh, he didn't give me any sense of who the technical people might be that they're going to need. But but on the other hand, they've got the sales knowledge, and I think that's the biggest chunk of this. I think you can easily find technical people. The question is, can you make those deals that are necessary to reestablish this company? Remember, uh, as U.S. Steel was saying goodbye, they were doing us no favor. They were keeping contracts for themselves. You know, we won this contract, so we're going to keep it. We're going to allocate it to one of our plants, Canada. You don't get this contract anymore. Mm-hmm. So the reality is they're going to have to go out there and reassert themselves. And I believe they bring that credibility to the marketplace that when they're seeking those contracts, people will say, well, I know who you are, and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Uh, it bodes well, by the way, that this guy was even at the summit. I, I did not know he was attending. Obviously, we were doing our show from there in the in the lobby, as you saw. But 
you know, the, the the fact that he took the time and said, you know, we're here now, we're going to be a player, and he wants to, I guess, start to mingle and, and, and rub shoulders with the, the folks in this community. I'll say that. Um, Mr. So I asked Mr. Cheney, he, he lives in New Jersey. He has been away from his family for the last three weeks, living in a hotel in this area, trying to dot the I's and cross the T's on all the, on the deals. And I think someone at the chamber simply found out that he was in the area. They said, well, look, we've got this summit. He didn't know anything about it. Would you like to attend? And he said, gosh, you know, I'm really too busy to create a, a speech from scratch. So they said, well, could you come? And, and they ran, ran this idea of what they called a fireside chat. Uh, well, who's, who's going to ask the questions? I don't necessarily think Mr. Cheney, forgive me, Bill was looking for a journalist to be, lead the fireside yeah, chat. Yeah, that happens. Because uh, I'm not sure he was quite comfortable, but they, they threw my name out there, and he said, okay, yes, an academic, that's fine. And they gave me all of 15 minutes, so this was a very small part of that summit. But he was comfortable enough to take time out of his day and come. Uh, I think he was surprised at the size of the audience. Uh, we were not the first people during the lunch hour, so we got to hear some of the other things going on, and he acknowledged that he was very excited about the things he was hearing. Uh, I turned around to the audience and said, in a way, this was his coming out party, uh, and he reinforced that once they get into the community a little more established, they hope to have another event to be more properly welcomed into the community and put the welcome mat out. So I, I, I you know, for people who are American, you could have that American mentality that, look, you're just lucky I'm in town and, and uh, sort of I'm a king and you're the, the peons. I didn't get that impression at all. I think they want to be back in the community. As I said, employer of choice, reestablish the luster at Stelco. I love the talk. Now, big question, of course, will be will they walk that talk too early to know, but at least they've got the right talk. Well, this is maybe one of the reasons why he wouldn't be comfortable with the journalist, because I, I, I'm a little cynical about this, and, and I don't know the individual, obviously, but... Uh, this, I, I heard a lot of the stuff from U.S. Steel when they took right. over, too. And and then they said, whoa, you know, we just looked at the books here, guys. I, I know we said we were going to do this, but let's let's revise this right now. Uh, is is there any optimism at all that that what he is saying is actually going to come? I mean, do you see bright days ahead for this? Do you see that, mm -hmm. that there's a place for this to happen and this company is going to be uh, not just a, a survival mode but in, into thrive mode as well? Mm -hmm. So if I can just take you back to when U.S. Steel took over Stelco. It was a different time. The steel industry was roaring at that time. U.S. Steel's purchase of, of Stelco at that time was that they needed capacity. So sure, yeah, we'll take you. It's a lot easier to buy you than to build a plant from scratch. And yes, we'll make investments because look at how this market's booming. And then it was less than a year later that the market was tanking. And this time around, you've got a company taking over Stelco at, uh, you know, not the world's best time. There's been a little growth in steel prices and there's been a little growth in demand, but this is far from a booming industry. So I think they don't have any blinders on. They know what they got. As well, they have spent now the better part of 14, 15 months going through the books with a fine-tooth comb, uh, making this deal happen. Uh, I can say it to you, and I don't want to be too cynical about this either, but uh, one, two advantages they have that U.S. Steel didn't have is they have found a way to offload any responsibility for environmental problems down at that site. Their argument is simply going to be we didn't create them, and therefore we didn't want to deal with them. And, and the world at large has stepped up. Basically, the Ontario government has stepped up and said, okay, we'll hold you harmless for that. And then the other one is the pension obligation. Yes, they're going to pay $300 million into the pension fund to try to reduce that $800 million deficit. But the big plan now is that LANCO. So they've been able to get this without those obligations so they can really focus on the core steelmaking business. This, the conditions are right for them to do a good job. 
Now, whether or not that will happen, whether they are just talking smoke, don't know. And, and because Bedrock's only been around for 14 months and has not actually done anything until now, they're the first acquisition. Bill, I should maybe say I asked them, there's another company that we've talked about called Algoma that's yeah. in some trouble, and they were rumored to have an interest in Algoma. Is that on your radar? And, and he, again, was very clear that we are going to focus on Stelco. We, we, we have to do some fixing up there before we go anywhere else. We have other resources, and we may make other acquisitions, but I didn't get the impression anything was imminent. Well, we'll see. Like I say, the keys got turned over today, and uh, we'll see uh, just how these uh, guys are going to operate over the next little while. Uh, thanks so much for coming in. Great to see you again. My pleasure. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Of course, have a great Canada Day weekend. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, as you know, uh, Donald Trump is drawing ire from both sides of the political spectrum now over tweets that he sent about MSNBC's morning television show. It's called Morning Joe with uh, Joe Scarborough, former Congressman Joe Scarborough, and uh, Mika Brzezinski. Uh, he called the hosts low IQ and psycho Joe and described Mika as bleeding badly from a facelift when he uh, invited them to his place down in uh, Florida in West Palm Beach some time ago. Uh, I, I, quite aside from, from the politics here, uh, the personal attacks has drawn ire from people like uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell. These are Republicans that are supposed to be on the Republican team with Trump, but uh, they're uh, drawing the line on this one and said he stepped over that line in a big way. So how does the bipartisan condemnation hurt Trump's presidency and branding uh, and the way that he handled this? Uh, it was uh, quite upsetting to many people to read the way that he has uh, written about uh, Mika in this particular case. She seemed to be the target of most of his uh, his anger, more so than Scarborough was. Uh, they were on the show today. Actually, they're supposed to have the day off, as we were told. But uh, I guess Joe and Mika actually showed up as guests on their own show. And Mika talked about her reaction to what happened. Um, you know what? I think it's been fascinating um, and frightening and really sad for our country. I mean, I'm... You know, I've been getting a lot of texts and hearing you all talking. Thank you. I'm fine. Um, my family brought me up really tough. This is absolutely nothing. But I think for me personally, but I am very concerned as to what this once again reveals about the president of the United States. It's strange. Think about it. It is unbelievably alarming that this president is so easily played. He's so easily played by a cable news host. Now, what is that saying to our allies? What is that saying to our enemies that this president is so easily played? That's uh, Mika Brzezinski, of course, uh, from the Morning Joe show on MSNBC, responding to the reaction, of course, uh, about Donald Trump's tweets uh, over the last 24 hours or so. What about branding? What about public relations here? Let's bring Glenn Selig into the conversation. Uh, Glenn, of course, is president and CEO of Selig Multimedia, strategist and chief at the publicity agency, and uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Glenn, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much, Bill. I appreciate it. Well, I'm glad you had some time to talk with us about this, because I, I want to try to separate the politics uh, from from the PR here, because uh, anybody in public office, anybody with a public persona, such as Donald Trump and now President Trump, uh, you would think has to be aware of the public relations and the branding issues that are at play here. Uh, as, as somebody who's an expert in that field, Glenn, what was your reaction when you saw what was going on over the last 48 hours? You know, I'd like to say that I wasn't surprised because, you know, watching this and watching it unfold here in the United States, you know, in the United States, people are a very divided country right now. 
when you do consider the politics. But it's, you know, it's hard to be surprised because every day there is something else. I, I will say this. People often confuse this notion of PR and marketing, and they're all the same thing. Well, PR and marketing, I think, as exemplified with Donald Trump, is that they're very different. Donald Trump is a great marketing expert. Marketing, as I define it, is about sales. It's about bringing people over. It's about winning people over. PR is about image and how, what people think about you. It's less tangible as far as results. And Donald Trump is a master marketer, but he's really bad in PR. And what he's suffering right now is an image and he's solidifying a really bad image among the people who don't like him already. What about the public reaction to this, though, Glenn? I mean, do, do you, me, the, the person on, on Main Street USA, can they differentiate between those two things, or do they just group them all together and say, that's Trump? In other words, they can't separate the politics from the marketing or from the public relations. Well, I think Main Street is also very divided, and it really, you know, in this country, we are incredibly divided. And and all this serves as people who are supporters of his say, "Go for it! This is great! This is exactly the person that we want." Or they just simply compartmentalize it and say, "You know what? This is what's needed. I, I don't particularly like uh, this particular notion about him, but he needs to clean, uh, you know, drain the swamp, and he needs to get things done in Washington." And people who had such reservations about him going in, this only reinforces. You know, there was hope, I think, among some of those people that, um, you know, these tactics wouldn't uh, manifest themselves during the presidency. And unfortunately, they are for those people. You know, it's it's really very troubling to watch, I think, for, for people who are watching it. What about the, uh, I want to get your, your reaction to to what Mika just said, uh, the clip we just played before you joined us here, Glenn. Uh, the segment that she did this morning on, on MSNBC, where she said one of the most troubling aspects in her mind anyway uh, was that the president can be played. In other words, he responds, he reacts, he seems to, to fly off the handle quite easily. And she says that's the bigger concern. I, I think that's a, a concern that a lot of people are sharing these days. Uh, clearly, and I think there are a lot of people who will hear what she says, and it will absolutely resonate with them and, and 100% agree with her. And the m- misogynistic uh, behaviors that he displays, uh, they will also agree with her and so many people in this country. But what's really interesting to watch as I talk to people and I talk to even friends of mine, is they see it, you know, people who are supporters of his, many of them, some of them maybe, um, see it completely differently. And they say, you know what, it's so refreshing that we, we hear somebody, uh, they're not so politically correct. They say exactly how they feel. And yes, this was, he doesn't really necessarily believe that, but he's just doing it. He, he needs to do it. We need to break away from, from business as usual. And they excuse it. But you did bring up the politics behind it where, you know, this will all come down to, if we do consider the politics of it, it'll come down to how much support he's losing among uh, members of Congress. And if we start considering them and he starts to lose them, then it's really going to be game over for him because that's the only thing he's clinging to right now. Well, and there's that political element to that. And you're right, you can't really divorce that. I mean, you can set it aside momentarily, but there is going to be a political impact to this, isn't there, when you look at this, Glenn? I think after November the 8th last year, a lot of Republicans said, look, we didn't like this guy. We didn't even want him really to be our nominee, but he's won this thing and he's on our team, so I guess we're going to have to be on side. I'm not so sure a lot of people share that opinion, and especially in the Congress these days. I think a, a lot of those elected officials are thinking, geez, you know, it, uh, guilt by association, do I really want to be on, on Team Trump? It is, it is really tough because I think that even people who are reluctantly on Team Trump within Congress are, are just doing it because 
they feel like they're their supporters in their districts or in their home states that they really have no choice but to do so. And for people who dislike this president so much, they absolutely do not understand how people can like him. It's, you know, what I do for a living, and you try and get into the minds of other people, you try and see things from other perspectives. But I'm telling you, the people who dislike this president have a really hard time understanding why people continue to support him. It's a head-scratcher. It really is, and, and, and nobody seems to have the right answer to that. But, but in, in your business, and when you're looking at things like this and publicity and, and, and developing strategies for things like this, uh, you understand, obviously, that, that there's a polarization. There are some people that hate Trump, hated him before he was the nominee, are always going to hate him no matter what. Others that are always going to be on his side no matter what he says, no matter what he does. And we've seen that reaction on social media over the last 24 hours as well. But, but isn't the target audience uh, for, for a strategy uh, to, to grab that middle crowd, that, those ones that, that, that are not quite sure where they're going? You could win them over, if we, at least for a little while. Uh, you know, in other words, they're malleable. You, you, can, you can get to them if you develop a proper strategy. Uh, does he not concern himself at all that he's losing them? I don't think he does. I, I, I don't think he does. He, he clearly is playing to the people who feel, he feels like are continually on his side. And he has apparently surrounded himself by people who tell him exactly what he wants to hear or people who fear that if they tell him what they, feel, what they actually feel and what the situation is, that you know, it won't go well. So it's, it's a very toxic situation that's going on. But you're absolutely right. It's those people in the middle that every election in this country comes down to. It's those swing voters and which way they go. And in the last election, there were people who absolutely hated you know, his opponent, Hillary Clinton, and, and went for him. And those, some of those people have regretted their votes. And I think it'll be very telling because we have what's called midterms here. Mm-hmm. which is the election in between, you know, two years after the presidential election. And it'll be very interesting to see what starts to happen and what happens to that support. And if his support, if the president's support starts to erode um, across the country, then you'll start seeing, you know, mass defection. And then he, then, then he really doesn't have the power. Right now he has, you know, theoretically, all the Republicans behind him, and they're just holding their noses and trying to do what's best because they have an agenda. But as these agenda items don't advance... Healthcare doesn't come through. All these all these initiatives aren't happening. They're going to start getting frustrated, and they're saying, "What you know? What are we doing? It isn't changing. It's exactly it's it's gridlock in another way." And we have all these sideshows. It's not unusual, I suppose, in 2017 to think that that a world leader uh, is going to be active on social media. I mean, that's it's it's the the way that many people communicate these days. So that that that's not that surprising. But it's the fashion and the and the way in which he, he seems to be doing it that that I think is causing an awful lot of the outrage. What what about the people's attitude, the American public attitude towards? towards how Trump is doing things right now. I, I understand, you know, how the catchphrases like drain the swamp and all this sort of stuff and make America great again. And that can resonate with an awful lot of people, especially people that feel as if they're being disadvantaged. But but is there an attitude at all, Glenn, that, that people want their president to be, quote unquote, presidential, to, to act like a president and not just like a, you know, the, well, like Donald Trump is acting? And amongst a certain number of the electorate, absolutely. And they're completely embarrassed when they go to foreign countries or even in this country by what's happening. 
there's a, an awful lot of people who are embarrassed by what's happening. And the fact that you're talking about it in Canada is pretty incredible about uh, about a Twitter storm that's going on. Yes, it's, it, there are quite a few people, even those within his own party, and even people who support him, who, who believe that he shouldn't be acting this way on Twitter and he should display some sort of presidential behavior and have a filter. I mean, he's not the first president to be frustrated by what's going on. He's not the first president to be attacked by the media. You know, the, the media here can be very vicious. He just doesn't seem to take it very well, and he takes it very, very personally, and he lashes out. So I am sure behind closed doors, when Bill Clinton was president or when Barack Obama was president or Bush was president, they yelled and screamed and were angry. But then it didn't come out of, you know, it stayed in the walls of the White House. It didn't end up on Twitter or it didn't end up in front of a microphone. That kept that stayed within the walls, and that's what I, I mean. People don't like to see the sausage being made. I don't think people like to see all that stuff. It's like Jerry Springer come alive with, <laughs> on, on Twitter with the president. It's really you know, and there's a certain segment of the audience that show was on for years. It may still be, be on in some parts of the country, and people love that. And for others, oh, yeah, it's still on in the afternoons. Yeah, it's still on okay, in the afternoons up here. <laughs> but but I mean, you know, to the point of art imitating life. I mean, I, I just I just finished binge watching uh, the last season of House of Cards uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh-huh. And and there's yeah, Kevin Spacey, show. of course, as yes, yeah, as President Underwood. Uh, but to your point, everything is behind closed doors. You know the chicanery, the 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 the, the backbiting and the backstabbing that goes on there. Uh, you don't make it public. I mean, that's not what you do when you're in, in elected office. It's not what you. Either Trump doesn't know that, or he doesn't care about it. I'm not sure what it is right now, but it seems to be alienating an awful lot of the people that he probably needs to be reaching now to try to gain support for what he wants to do. Well, I think that there are a lot of people in this country who basically believe that, you know, he doesn't take advice very well. He believes he's an expert at everything and he can do everything alone. And he's said things to that effect. And he doesn't take advice very well. I think we've got we've got a, a real problem that that's going on. And, and there are some people who do find it. And if you don't agree with it, it's hard to understand it. But there are people who say it's so refreshing to get into the mind of an elected leader. He's finally doing something. And and I'm so tired of nothing happening. At least, you know, I know where he stands and he's so authentic. You know, I know exactly what he feels like. And you know what? I wouldn't even discount the possibility. And I don't hear anybody talking about it, but I wouldn't discount the possibility that this Twitter storm was created because of the healthcare failure. Look at what he did during the presidential election. He changed the subject. He's a master of changing the subject. And he believes that going on the offensive and going on the attack puts him in a power position because he's not being attacked. While healthcare, he's being attacked. I, I, I wouldn't discount the idea that this wasn't all intentional because he didn't like the headlines of healthcare, that he created something else that everybody would talk about. And he didn't see it through to the next step to realize how detrimental this is in ever trying to bring the country together, he's alienating people who he, at, at some point, will need. Remember the uh, the interview we gave uh, a couple of weeks ago, Glenn, that uh, I think raised an awful lot of eyebrows, uh, where he said, I'll, pay, I'll paraphrase it, that, uh, you know, being president's a lot tougher than I thought it was going to be. It's a tougher job. Uh, do you think he was actually responding to the fact that, that of, of this firestorm of controversy that that he has has attracted as a result of this i mean you know he he's always been a polarizing figure and even being he was just donald trump the 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 millionaire you know there was the battles with rosie o'donnell and things like that and but that that rolled off people's backs because those are just celebrities you know you know bite backbiting at each other but this this relentless criticism that he's had which by the way your point's well taken everybody in the white house has received it Clinton certainly did. George W. did. Uh, I mean, Barack Obama certainly had. 
I, I, did he expect him to, that everybody was going to love him, or did, was he was he not ready for for the the controversy and and the uh, I guess the controversial attitude that that people are going to develop about him once he became president? I suspect that Donald Trump has never been much of an advanced planner. I, I I think the whole campaign and much of his life is geared for today and maybe tomorrow. I don't think there's much thought much beyond that. So did he think through what this would be like and what if he uh, won the White House and what what that would what, what that would be like and the attacks he would get and all that? Probably never even given any thought. I don't even think he thought about it. Not because he didn't think he was going to win, but just because I don't think he thinks that way. He doesn't think in terms of many months in advance. If he did, he probably wouldn't be doing the stuff that he's doing. But for whatever reason, throughout life, he's been able to get by without advanced planning. Most of us can't do that. You know, <laughs> back yourself into a corner if you don't think beyond tomorrow. And somehow he figures out a way and he's been validated. You know, he hears people say, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I'm sure if you were sitting in the White House and listening as a fly, you would hear him say, everybody told me I wouldn't win this election. Everybody told me I shouldn't say this. Everybody told me I shouldn't say that. And you know what? I did it and I won and I'm right. And that's the validation that he got. So it's, you know, here, here's a situation where he got exactly what he wanted, doing it his way, and he's doing the same thing when he's in the White House. I don't think anybody should be particularly surprised. Some people were hopeful that maybe he wouldn't be like that or we wouldn't see it all the time. And, he's being, and, and some people see it as him being authentic Donald Trump. And they got exactly what they wanted. And other people are like, oh, my God, he's being authentic Donald Trump. It makes me cringe. Depends on your viewpoint. All right, you and I finish the conversation. You hang up the phone. Thirty seconds later, your phone rings again, Glenn, and it's Kellyanne Conway. And she said, "Glenn, listen, we, we we need you to help clean this mess up. What would your advice be?" Wow. My first question is before I got involved because I've actually thought about this. But <laughs> um, if he would listen, if he would actually take advice, I would love to be able to help. But my thought is he would never take advice. And I'm sure, he's, I'm sure there are very smart people in the White House, very smart people who try to advise him, and he doesn't listen. So my advice to her would be, I mean, if you decide to stay there and you stay there, it becomes your name that gets drugged down in the mud. It, it really does. Sean Spicer, any of them. You know, they have to continue to defend something that many people feel is indefensible. And we'll see how history records this. I will say this, after everything we've talked about, if the economy is good, people are back to work and things are going well, he most probably will win re-election. If he doesn't, you know, nothing happens in between and there isn't impeachment or anything like that. Because it's going to come down to those basic things, which is why I think he plays those things up. You know, so it all comes down to that. But Kellyanne Conway, if she called, I would say, look, this is, this is your decision to make. You could either continue to defend him or you can... You know, jump out and just say, I can't continue to defend him. I can't continue to operate under these conditions. So they're, they're making a choice by staying there. Well, she may well be on the other line, so I'm going to let you go at this stage, Glenn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks so much for this. Listen, have a great weekend. And uh, while well, we're doing our birthday celebrations, yours is the 4th of uh, July in just a few days, That's too. Right. So have a, have a great 4th of July week with, with yourselves. And always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much, Glenn. Oh, you bet. Thanks so much for having me, having me as well. Take care. Glenn Selig, of course, President and CEO, Selig Multimedia Strategist and Chief at the Publicity Agency. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Happy Canada 150. 
Uh, lots of celebrations, of course, going on right across the country uh, over this holiday weekend as uh, Canada celebrates a birthday. Uh, Hamilton's older than uh, than that, obviously. We did our sesquicentennial. We don't we see we use the big word in Hamilton because we're we're adults here. Uh, back when we had our uh, <laughs> celebration some time ago, but uh, the uh, the comparisons to what was going on back in those days to what's now is is really phenomenal. Uh, and we're going to talk about that with our dear friend Brian Henley, local historian, of course, who's with us here in studio. Good to see you again. It's been a long Bill, time. I haven't seen you since, uh, I guess, uh, we did the uh, November, November 11th. Yeah, yeah, November the 11th yeah. story. Well, it's uh, you're familiar, though, uh, vocally, or in my <laughs> ears. Uh, it's like we see each other quite often. <laughs> well, it's, it's great to have you here because I love talking with you about Hamilton's history and about yeah. Canada's history as well. Yeah. Uh, and and let's, let's get into that just a little bit. I mean, I'm, you know, born and raised in the city and... Uh, you know, a lot of the history I know from from what my mom and dad used to tell me, and uh, my dad was a was a he was a record keeper. I mean, he brought books and he used to mm-hmm. go to the library and mm, yeah. cover stuff off and everything like this. I think my sister has most of that stuff that he uh, accumulated over the years, and, and it's fascinating to watch this stuff. But uh, Hamilton was uh, in in 1867, 150 years ago, as Canada. Uh, became a country and the British North America Act. What, what was going on in this city at that time? What was it like? Wow, interesting that you asked that because uh, since about 4.30 this morning, <laughs> I have been living in... You're an uh, early riser anyway. Yeah, well, I've been living in Hamilton in uh, late June, uh, early <clears throat> July 1867, and uh, it's for some writing that I'm doing. And uh, so I know how the city evolved there's one thing that to keep in mind that uh, everybody is celebrating Canada and that it was such a a welcome thing at the time. It was to most people, I would say, but certainly there was a lot of opposition to Canada being formed. Uh, active uh, people that were against the whole idea of confederation. George Brown in the Toronto Globe was a classic example. People, especially in Nova Scotia, that were working actively to reverse the joining. So, you know, it, it's that dynamic was going on. As well as one of the things that happened is that when they put Confederation together, it was kind of agreed that there would be a government formed and it would last for three years. Everybody said, no, no fooling around. Let it, let us, let the government uh, of this new dominion get its feet. I'm looking at the July 2nd, 1867 uh, Spectator. And they're saying, uh, there's opposition parties saying, to hell with that deal. We'll bring the government down because here's our chance to get power ourselves. So things things never change. But there's one thing, too, uh, that's very important to remember, specifically about Hamilton and, indeed, down to the Niagara District. Uh, the city was really made up of Americans. Either, really? Yeah. Well, either people that had recently come themselves or whose parents mm-hmm. might have come from there. For example, during the uh, Civil War, 1861, we're only talking six... Yeah, just a few years. Six yeah. years uh, previously, <clears throat> when the war was declared, well, especially when uh, Abraham Lincoln called for that big uh, number of volunteers, I think it was half a million or something like that, um, a lot of shops emptied as, as the men just left. We're heading south, we're going to join... The uh, Union Army, mostly. So that, that, that was a factor. Another factor that was really strong was that um, one of the reasons that Canada was formed at all 
was the threat from the United States after the Civil War was over. There was really serious concern, awareness, that uh, the army that had been assembled to uh, put down the rebellion in the northern point of view um, could just turn their attention north. Uh, There were a lot of people in Hamilton and Hamilton area that were in favor of annexation rather than confederation. Really? Yeah. So it, it's a mix. So it's, it's it, not things could have gone the other way. Well, th- certainly. And uh, th- this was a time of what they call the reciprocity uh, treaty, yeah. where there was more or less absolute free trade between Canada and the states, or between Upper Canada, Canada East, Canada West, and the states. And um, for Canada, one of the big things that happened with Canada being formed is that they put in these tariffs, uh, national policy, protective tariffs, to encourage the uh, growth of local industry. Well, that was popular to a degree, except if you're a consumer, then all of those taxes mean that you're paying more for sure. something that you didn't pay for before. Yeah. So that wasn't necessarily uh, popular as well. And I, it's one of the sort of symbolic things that I noted this morning, uh, July 1st, 1867 in Hamilton, even before the sunrise, just before the sunrise, actually, church bells started to peal all throughout the city. And the spectator writer at the time said, well, here's a symbol of the hope for harmony between all of these new British American provinces that are joining themselves in this new dominion. After the church bells were finished peeling, in the far east end of the city, local artillery units banged off uh, cannons loudly that could be heard everywhere. Spectator reporter uh, said, well, this is symbolic of uh, a message to our neighbors to the south that if they want to come north and take us over, we're ready to fight back. It was that real? Yeah. What, t- Brian, talk to me about the players. I mean, historically, there's two names I want to throw out here and, and, and talk about their relevance in, in this Hamilton community. Uh, one is Alan McNabb, mm-hmm. Sir Alan McNabb. Yep. And, of course, we, you know, Dundurn Castle, who I, where I hope many people have been. If you sure. haven't, if you're a new Hamiltonian, you got to go to Dundurn Castle. Uh, that was his house. That good was hands his residence. At the moment, can I tell you? Uh, but, you know, when we talk about ha- Canada's history back in those days, you know, you think of John A. MacDonald and, and Cartier and George Brown and, yeah, and others yeah, like yeah. that. But McNabb was a player, too, wasn't he? He was, uh, although by the 1860s, he was uh, getting older. Yeah. He uh, had some health issues. He had some scandal issues as well. Uh, so John A. MacDonald, John A. MacDonald, when he was a young man uh, just starting out in politics, kind of looked towards uh, Sir Ella McNabb as, as being his mentor, or, or certainly one of his mentors. Mm-hmm. And uh, John A. MacDonald coming to Hamilton to Dundurn Castle was not uncommon. So, uh, yeah, McNabb was, and he was prime minister of an earlier yeah. federation, yeah. the Federation of Canada East and Canada West, and indeed briefly served as uh, premier of of that uh, government. So that was interesting, too. You know, there's one of the very few pre-Confederation federal buildings that's still standing in Canada East and Canada West, and it's in Hamilton, it's on Stewart Street, and it's now the Ontario Workers' Arts and Heritage. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that was, of course, started as a uh, customs house. Yeah. So that was a federal building, federally financed, built, federal use, 
pre-1867. So, yeah, so Alan McNabb was, by 1867, was uh, not an integral factor, but he had been before. And Sir John A. was, uh, you know, super, super popular in Hamilton. And, and actually one of his very last public appearances before his, his health declined so badly that he died not long after was was in Hamilton. Uh, I think it was 1891. Uh, Alan McNabb, you mentioned some of the controversies. Uh, we, we could probably spend the whole hour talking about mm-hmm. uh, his his personal life. I, I, one of the other great ones that I, I stories about that, of course, is it was his death itself, and of course his conversion, mm-hmm. his religious conversion yeah. at the time, mm-hmm. uh, much to the angst, of course, of, of, of some of his own family members. Yeah, that, yeah. Well, that, that was uh, hmm, interesting. Uh, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, Anglican for a long time, then this uh, Roman Catholic uh, relations. Uh, supposedly it was a pretty, uh, I was going to use the word tawdry, maybe not tragedy, but intense scene as he, the newly died uh, Alan McNabb. Was, was, was it a deathbed conversion? Because I well, know that's it was confusion. Right. Uh, that's, that's the that's, part of the confusion, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because I know some family members said, "No, he did not. Yeah, he exactly. never converted." Yeah. Well, I don't think there's an accurate. Only the good Lord knows for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, uh, I was, I was going to say that when he was lying in his deathbed or whatever, awaiting uh, funeral and all of that, there was crowds of people at Dundurn and sort of factions as to. You know, was he Catholic? Was he Protestant? And there were different organizations that were either Catholic or Protestant organizations that were sort of mulling about and wanting this controversy uh, settled. But, uh, In, uh, let's talk about the economy then. As, as we look at uh, 150 years ago, and as Canada was being born, Hamilton, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, had already been incorporated as a city. And we mm-hmm. know about George Hamilton and, and, and that element of it. But we also know that back in those early, early settlement days uh, in this part of the country, that uh, the Lancaster and Dundas were actually the centers of commerce uh, yep. because of what was being done at the time. Mm-hmm. Had, had, by 1867, had that transitioned into Hamilton oh, yet? Oh, yeah. Uh, very definitely. Industry was starting to uh, yeah. prop up here, wasn't and it? And you know, the big thing uh, we talk and, and think, and certainly it's a large part of my life, about technological yeah. change in this era, and uh, certainly it is very true and very fast. Well, the 1850s, 60s were an era of technological change in terms of the railroads. Railroads, there were little ones uh, before, I think it was the early 1850s when the Great Western uh, Railway uh, got going, and uh, but in that time from, say, 1851, I think it was, 54, whatever, to 1867, it's a fairly short time. But during that time, for example, Hamilton would have the daily New York newspapers delivered. Anybody that wanted to read the Times or whatever the various new, uh, American newspapers they, they, of the day. They didn't go to chapters like I do now? <laughs> <laughs> no, they would be here. So, yeah. like, And that gets back to what I was saying about the interaction between uh, Canada and the States was very, very convenient, real, and the nature of the city had changed to a large part because of the... Uh, uh, arrival of the railways that... Uh, and back to McNabb for a second, he was influential in getting the railway to stop here, was yeah. he not? I mean, he pulled a few strings with well, some exactly. of his government friends. Yeah, and he was on the board of the um, uh, Great Western Railway. The story goes that uh, the, the the basic 
premise behind the Great Western Railway was to link up Western New York, Buffalo in particular, with Detroit, and the shortest route would be through Canada, Upper Canada at yeah. the time. And so that was the thing. <clears throat> the line of the railway, as originally proposed, was more or less what we, we think now of that uh, central uh, expressway that's been talked about. I can't, I can't remember what it's called, but there, there's one that is sort of semi-on-the-books to connect uh, Niagara with towards Western Ontario. Anyway, the whole line didn't have to come to Hamilton at all. And it was only through McNabb's influence that it did, or mainly through his influence that it did. And the interesting thing, too, uh, is that even to bring it to Hamilton, it didn't necessarily have to go on the bayfront. It could have been on the mountain kind of thing and then make connections that way. But McNabb definitely wanted it to go below the bluffs, below his estate. Yeah, right down Because below. it was a symbol of progress, a symbol of, you know, prosperity, a symbol of something that he had a, a, a hand in, a symbol of helping his home community uh, thrive. So it did. And you see, when they, before the railroad, Dundas was still an active, strong commercial manufacturing center with the Desjardins Canal. Ships literally went, and fairly big <coughs> freight ships would go right through Coots Paradise into Dundas and drop off manufactured imports and that kind of thing, pick up grain, corn, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and go out. So, I mean, that was that was strong. But the arrival of the railway, it was almost instantaneously cut the bottom out of that market, and that's when Hamilton's really started to get, become ascended. I was going to say, had that not happened, had McNabb not been able to, to make that happen and get the railroad here in Hamilton, yep. what would have happened? Would the industry have grown here to the extent that it did? Was that the catalyst for it? Yeah, I would say. I would say. And even in today's terms, uh, Hamilton's ideal geographic position, position for the transport of goods, whether by water, rail, or, or overland, uh, applied there as well. So yes, uh, railroad was, was super important. Uh, and when the railroad came, um, not only was it uh, the passenger lines and the transportation of goods and the bringing in of raw materials for industry, McNabb also or the company anyway, uh, him involved, made sure that Hamilton was the place where uh, <clears throat> locomotives were built, where uh, steel rails were fabricated, where steel rails for the railroad were fixed because they would often, you know, need to be realigned. So beneath uh, Dundurn, what we now know as Dundurn Park, Dundurn at the time, was a huge complex of... Uh, industry related to the Great Western Railway, the Great Western Shops, they called it. And uh, there was a lot going on there. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. But uh, certainly the arrival of railroad was important. Uh, the opening up of the um, uh, canal across the beach strip, the Burlington Canal, was critical as well. That was a little bit earlier, only about 20, 25 years earlier. But it all sort of came together. 
I want to talk about how phys- the physical uh, outlook and, and what Hamilton actually looked like and actually what was Hamilton do. We have to do a short break. But fascinating to hear about the railroads, and uh, thank God that uh, Alan McDab did that, because that was my grandfather's job. He was a mm-hmm. conductor on the THB sure. Railroad, yep. uh, and that employed an awful lot of people in this community for many years. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Brian Henley wants to talk about the Hamilton perspective. I, I mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, Brian, uh, I wanted to ask you about two people. One was Alan McNabb. Um, and the other one, uh, you and I were just talking about, as a matter of fact, before the the, the, the news break was over, uh, was Isaac Buchanan, uh, who mm-hmm. was a player then. Of course, sure. Ochmar was his residence mm-hmm. uh, up on the escarpment. Yeah. Uh, still in the news these days, of mm-hmm. course, for uh, different reasons. But but he was a player. And I, I, the reason I was going to ask you about this was Canada and was born 1867, July 1st, the official day. Hamilton has always known how to throw a party. I mean, yeah. we do great parades. We mm-hmm. do great celebrations. Yep. How did we acknowledge Confederation? Well, this is it. Well, good, good question. And to put on a, a, a celebration, community celebration, they needed community support because yeah. the uh, municipal government uh, didn't dole out money for uh, uh, wagons for the parade, for the decorations and uh, platforms for speakers and all that kind of stuff. So there was a committee put together to uh, garner subscriptions from private citizens f- to put on this celebration. The very first place they went to was Ockmar to Isaac Buchanan, and he w- immediately donated $100. Now, even I could probably donate $100 in 2017 dollars, but at the time, $100 would translate to roughly $1,500 now. So uh, there was Which a was a, that's a big chunk of change. Yeah, yeah for a one-day celebration. And other people did it, too. And one of the big elements of the celebration was what they called a Calithumpian parade. Now, what is that? Now, that well, it's a parade that involved uh, the societies you know, of the day, school children, trades people, bands, that kind of stuff. So sort of a variety of things. And this, this parade that uh, started in uh, Gore Park and ended up in the Crystal Palace grounds, which are now uh, Victoria Park, w- was just remarkable as I was reading it. The uh, Central School was uh, extant. They had 400 school children that uh, marched along in the parade th- through the dust of the streets, they said. Uh, and they would just, and it was a hot day, but they'd sing their songs. The butchers of Hamilton put together a, a display where they had this wagon with an ox on it. And the spectator reporter said that the ox calmly gazed over the crowd in its placid gaze, wondering, why am I here, type of thing. Uh, they had, uh, Wenzer and Company was a sewing machine manufacturer that was internationally famous. The Wenzer building still stands on James Street North and, ooh, I can't remember, the uh, Cross Street. But uh, it, it's still there. It's, it's an um, Asian restaurant. Anyway, it, uh, they made sewing machines, and the bulk of their uh, employees were women. So this was a, a big deal to have women in the parade in costume to uh, celebrate. There were bands deluxe. There were militia units of boys. There, I can't remember the offhand the name, but it was Royal Cadets, I think it was called. And they marched along in uniform, just like the uh, their adults, but they had wooden soldier uh, rifles instead of real rifles that kind of thing it was a real f- a fun thing and 
the crowds lined the route of the procession right from the Gore, right uh, in a, circled around the downtown area, out York, and then a long lock to the Crystal Palace grounds. The crowds were thick the whole way, and it wasn't just Hamiltonians. The celebration was advertised widely, so train loads, we're talking about train, mm-hmm. train loads of people came into the city just for that celebration. So it was huge. It what did, what did the city look like in those days? I mean, uh, my understanding, obviously, the, the, you know, the bay is always going to be the northern border of the city. Mm-hmm. But how far, I mean, south now, you know, you, you go all the way up to the, past the airport, of course. Mm-hmm. But my understanding is, was, was the brow, was the escarpment actually the city limits in those days? Uh I, I know, I, you know, Akmar, Isaac Buchanan's house, of course, yeah. was, well, well, you know where it is there, West 5th and Fennel, but there was no West 5th then, there was yeah. no Fennel then. You know the uh, concession road system? Yeah. And you see it in the r- rural areas? Oh, yeah. Well, within the city, when the concession roads were laid out, and this is 1790s, coming back from the uh, Bay Front would be, uh, Barton was the first one, um, Main Street, and then you get to Aberdeen, which in 1867, Aberdeen was called Concession Street. Oh, is that right? And if you look at a map, as Aberdeen goes along, it'll run into the escarpment. But that line would still continue. So Concession Street on the mountain is actually the same. A continuation of Aberdeen, really. Yeah. And Hamilton's boundaries to the south in 1867 were, or was, Concession Street. So that little gap between concession and the edge of the escarpment was still was uh, still Hamilton. James Street Mountain Road was still active, was active, and even that's uh, extension of a deer run, believe it or not. Jolly Cut had been built, uh, well actually the Jolly Cut was built just a little bit later, so I'll back up on that one. It was built in the 1870s. But whatever, there were a couple of uh, uh, ways up and down the mountain. But for somebody like um, Buchanan with Arkmar, and there was a really big place called Shadok up there as well. They were up there for the fresh air and, you know, health of the, uh, the community. That's one of the things that uh, people, you have to remember, cities were, were not clean necessarily. There were thousands of horses dumping everywhere, <laughs> everywhere you look, so there was that smell alone. Um, you know, there, the, there were few pollution controls. Certainly down on the Bay, f- bay itself, they, were, they would say that you could tell what uh, color the uh, clothing fa- manufacturers were <laughs> oh, emphasizing no. that day because that's the... That's the dye that was yeah, in... Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, and I, I got about a minute left here. Uh, you know, we, th- we think of Hamilton and, you know, in, in its infancy and, of course, the, the industry, and we think of steel of manufacturing, of course. Mm-hmm. But there's always there's a great textile history in this city, oh. and that started back in those days, didn't Very it? Very much so, You yeah. mentioned the Singer factory. Well, the... Yeah. the, 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 the Winesier, yeah. Yeah, the Winesier. So, well, I, I guess he, st- he took the design from Singer anyway mm-hmm. from yeah. for t- to make the machines in the first place. But yeah. textile's always been big. For sure, and uh, one of the richest uh, men ever in Hamilton history, W.E. Sanford, his, uh, uh, how he made his money was, he started making pre uh, clothing that was, he would make uh, all kinds of uh, clothes at a specific size and then sell them. Uh, rather than before that, people used to have 
suits made or individual clothes yeah, Instead made. of custom made, you just yeah, go and, yeah. here's so he, a size 42. Yeah, yeah. So he did that for, for consumers generally and even more so for the uh, military and made huge. I mean, we're talking multi, multi-millions in that time period, so... Listen, we we have to break it off. It was a pleasure having you in here. Okay, I, I just no. want to mention to folks, uh, if they want to follow up on a lot of the stuff we've talked to, go to the library. Uh, there's yeah. a great resource there yep. uh, about the history. and Very, uh, very uh, excellent uh, place. Some stuff there, too. And I know you spent a lot of time there mm, as, as we years. do as well. Uh, happy Canada Day. Thanks Same for being you, here, Bill. Brian. Brian Hanley, of course, Hamilton historian uh, and always a great friend of this program. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.